You may be seated. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. While you're turning there, uh, this sermon just reminded me of an experience that I had over and over and over again at the doctors. When I would go to the doctors as a child, uh, I would go sit in the waiting room and I would look at the magazines, and they would always have these little kid magazines. And my favorite of the kid magazines was this magazine called Highlights. You guys remember Highlight magazines? So Highlight magazines had all these really cool articles, all these cool pictures inside, all these things that you could do. But my personal favorite inside of the uh, Highlights magazine, my, my personal favorite um, article was the two pictures. You guys remember the two pictures? And they would ask, with, with the two pictures, side by side, they would ask, uh, tell me what the difference is between this picture and that picture. Notice the differences. And some of them were very, very subtle. Uh, most of them weren't because this is a kid's magazine. So, you know, they had little Timmy with a bat uh, playing baseball. He's up at, at the home plate, and the ball's getting thrown to him. And then in the other picture, Timmy doesn't have a bat. He's still standing there, but no bat or no ball or no helmet. Or maybe it's not Timmy. Maybe it's Jessica. Like, they completely changed the person. So you would just go through, you try to find the differences. They'd say there's 12 differences, and you'd have to find all 12. That's really what I want us to do this morning. I want us to find the differences in our lives if the Trinity were not in existence. If God were not triune, what would change? What's the difference? What would the effect be on our lives? Last week, we looked at why God being triune matters for us, what it accomplishes. We saw that because God is triune, he is love. Because God is triune, he is gracious. And because God is triune, he is the foundation for all beautiful unity through diversity. Today, we're going to just flip that around. We're going to look at what would not be possible if God were not triune. And so we're going to start in Romans chapter 8, verses 10 through 17. I'm going to read these verses, and then we will ask God's blessing on our time. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead also will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are not under obligation not to the flesh. We, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Because if you are living in accordance with the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Would you pray with me? Father, just as Kyle prayed, we are attempting the impossible as we dive into the mystery of the Trinity. What is revealed is ours to enjoy, to hold on to, to cling to, and to rejoice in and to glory in. But there is mystery, and we want to leave that mystery 
to you and trust in your goodness and in your sovereignty. Even as we sang earlier, you are the ancient of days, whatever comes behind us or in front of us or before us or after us. You're in control of it all and we trust you. And so, Father, I pray that we would press deeply into what is explicit, the explicit implications of what the Bible tells us about you being triune God. And God, I I pray that, that you would change our affections for Christ. You would help us to see ourselves the way that you view us, if we are indeed in Christ. God, that's only possible through your spirit. So, Holy Spirit, as we ask every Sunday, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. May the word of Christ being preached, may it bring faith. For those in this room, for those watching online, may it bring about faith. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So, you remember last week? We uh, began by asking the question, if somebody were to ask you, why is the Trinity important? Why is it a necessity? What would happen if there is no Trinity? How would you answer that? What would happen if God were not triune? Is there any change to your faith? So we went through those three points last week. This morning, I want to add to that question, how does the Trinity shape the gospel? If somebody were to ask you, uh, if there is no Trinity, how does that change your life? And specifically this morning, if there is no Trinity, How would that change your understanding of the gospel? How does the Trinity shape the gospel? What possible difference does the Trinity make in how we understand, appropriate, and delight in the gospel? Mike Reeves, in his book, uh, Delighting in the Trinity, says the Trinity is the mold for the gospel. The Trinity gives the gospel its character and its flavor. Everything that is beautiful about the gospel is only so because God is triune. And again, I just want to remind you, that book is an amazing book. Mike Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity. Everything that I am saying this morning comes straight from him. If you like it, it's because of him. If you don't like it, it's my misunderstanding of him. Go to that book. It's an amazing book. Uh, He was an amazing professor uh, when I was in seminary. Just an unbelievable resource. So go to him. Go to that book and delight in the Trinity alongside of him. Martin Luther uh, said, quote, the Trinity is the highest article of faith on which all others hang. Martin Luther said, the Trinity is the highest article of faith. Now, what's Martin Luther famous for? He started the Protestant Reformation, right? He began the Reformation by declaring, we are not justified before God based off of our works on, on what we can do, Justification was the entirety of his message, and yet he said about justification, justification is the article by which the church stands or falls. Justification is an, an enormous article. It's the article by which the church stands or falls. But the Trinity is the highest article of all of them, on which all other aspects of faith, namely and including justification, would hang. What does the Trinity have to do with the gospel? This morning, I want us to examine two realities that would not be possible if God were not triune. Number one, if God is not triune, salvation is impossible. If God is not triune, salvation is impossible. If the father didn't have a son, he couldn't send the son to be the one to die on the cross for our sins. He would have to make some other third party. 
Go back in Romans chapter 8, if you're already there, to verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. So God accomplished salvation, how? Sending his own son. So his own son is sent. If he doesn't have a son, if he's not triune, he doesn't have a son. And if he doesn't have a son, he can't send a son. Notice he sends his son in the likeness. I love the way Paul says this. In the likeness of sinful flesh. Not just the likeness of flesh and not sinful flesh, right? If he had said God sent his own son in sinful flesh, we've got a problem there because Jesus is now a sinner. But if we said God sent his son in the likeness of flesh... We also have a problem because he doesn't understand our infirmities in our own sin. He lived our lives with all of our limitations before us, except without sin. It was the likeness of sinful flesh. He never sinned, but he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And because of that, he was an offering for sin. God the Father condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ so that the, the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So in other words, if God were not triune, we would have to provide one of us for salvation. We'd have to provide one of us. We'd have to save ourselves. We'd have to provide a perfect sacrifice because God does not have one to send to us. We have two problems. If we have to provide the perfect sacrifice, problem number one, that means that there's no longer anything called grace because we're just providing our own substitute. We are doing the work necessary to get us saved. Problem number two, it's impossible to save ourselves. It's impossible to get somebody to be a substitute that will fit for all of humanity. It isn't grace because God hasn't done a thing to help save us, and it isn't possible because no one's perfect. And even if we were perfect, let's just hypothetically say that one person, one completely human individual, could be perfect and sinless. Then they could die in the place of one sinner. They couldn't die in the place of an infinite amount, of, a, of an enormous amount, because they themselves are not infinite. They themselves cannot house infinite wrath in their bodies on the cross or in the place of sinners. So they could only save one, and even that, they would save the one, and then they'd go to hell, and they couldn't get out of hell. It's impossible. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, we are going to be turning around to a bunch of different passages like we did last week. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. There is one God, so we don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God because the Bible tells us there's only one God. There's three persons in one God. And there is one mediator between God and man. So there's not two. There's no other option other than Christ. It is under Christ's name alone that we are saved. And he is the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. He was the one who gave himself as a ransom. He was sent by the Father as a ransom for us. The Father sends his Son as a substitute. The Son bears our penalty, rises from the dead, and the Holy Spirit applies that work to our hearts in the gift of regeneration. Therefore, salvation is all of God. If God were not triune, salvation would be impossible. Remember, we did this last week. We compared Christianity with Islam. I just want to do it again just in this one place. And again, I don't want to be pejorative here. I'm not trying uh, to be mean or argumentative. I'm just objectively saying Christianity believes in a trinity, in a triune God, three persons in one God. Islam does not. 
God is a solitary figure, one person and one God. He's a one-person God. And as such, they literally have no word in the Quran for salvation because it doesn't exist. God sending his son to save us through the grace that he has given to us does not exist. The closest word that you have in the Quran for salvation is the word success. That is the form of salvation in Islam. Success, live a successful life, whatever that means. Live a successful life that Allah requires and you can go to heaven. The Bible clearly says that God in his grace alone is the way that we are saved, not by our successful living. We've all failed. But unfortunately, I think most of us fall into what Mike Reeves describes as gospel light theology. Gospel light. He gives a great analogy in his book. Think think of it this way. God's a principal at a school. He's a principal at a school. You do something bad at the school. You get detention. And Jesus is a really nice classmate who shows up to detention and says, hey, buddy, you can go home. I'll sit in detention for you. I'll pay your detention, right? Often we think of that. And there there are some gospel realities even in that statement, right? There's some aspects of gospel reality. But where did we begin? We began in that reality with a solitary figure. We have a single solitary God who is the principal and not Jesus being sent, but Jesus is just one of us as a classmate. If God is a heavenly school principal, a solitary, single God, then everything ultimately that is described in that analogy is deeply defective. It's distorted because we start with a deficient view of who God is. Instead, we need to start with God as a father. God is our father. He's always existed in delighting in the son, and he wants to give that delight to us. It's not just we're in the doghouse because we've done things that are wrong. It's he wants to bring us into a reconciled relationship with him. Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. You can see this in what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18. I love this. This is the gospel. Often we think of the gospel as forgiveness or the gospel as just getting the bad stuff out of the way. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18. Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. He wants a relationship with us. He wants to bring us to God. We need to start with God as Father, infinitely and eternally loving his Son, a God who loves his Son so preciously that he wants to share that love with others. Now it's a different gospel. The gospel is not ultimately to get us out of detention, but rather to embrace us in love, in a relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to draw us into that love. That's the whole point of John 17, right? Father, I want them to be with me so they can experience the love that I experience with you. I want that love to flow. If God is a solitary individual, then salvation can only be at its best that we are law-abiding citizens. That we've just simply done what's been required of us. But if God is Father, the gospel is so much sweeter. It's no longer merely becoming a law-abiding citizen, but becoming spirit-anointed son. 
The gospel is about adoption. And that leads us to the second impossibility. Not only, number one, if God were not triune, is salvation impossible? But number two, if God is not triune, our adoption is impossible. If God is not triune, our adoption as sons and daughters is impossible. The gospel is about more than just being forgiven. It's about being adopted into God's family. Turn back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. In the passage that we read, I don't know if there was a place in that verse, in verse 14 and 15, that just kind of made you scratch your head a little bit. Go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 14. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, so every believer, all, every single believer, these are what? The sons, sons of God. All who are being led of the Spirit, so that includes ladies, right? Ladies, you're called sons here. You're called a son of God. Now, this might sound strange. Don't get offended. By the way, ladies, guys have their problems in the Bible too because we're the bride of Christ, right? We're, we're called, or a woman, we're called the bride of Christ. What is Paul doing here? Is Paul being purposely offensive, misogynistic? Why does he say all, both men and women, are sons? Why does he narrow it there? You can even see he uses the word children later. He could have said we're all children of God. But here he says sons. While the Bible does speak of children of God, Paul wants to do something very specific and be very clear here. What he is saying is that every single believer gets the privilege of enjoying the exact same status that the son has before the father. We are all sons. The son is a son. Obviously, we are sons as well. We all get to enjoy the exact same status as Jesus Christ the Son enjoys. This is, this is staggering truth. Over the course of this week, just typing these notes up, reading the book, typing things up, getting a flow of what's going on in the text, I, I would just have to stop. I couldn't even type because of the magnitude of what the Father desires us to know. Uh, if you're like me, you tend to think that God the Father has his favorite son, Jesus, and then we're his children too, and we're kind of relegated to the kids' table, right? You remember the kids' table? Like, all I wanted to do was sit at the table with the adults, and it was like, oh, no, you have to sit at the kids' table. Right? And I just, I felt so bad. I felt like an outcast. I felt like this is, you know, I can't be with the adults. I can't be there. Do you view yourself that way? You've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're hanging it out together at the adult table. And then we've got kids too. Meh. Just come in, but sit at the kids' table. Do you realize Paul wants you to know? This is why he says, not sons and daughters or not children, but sons. He wants you to know that you are identical in getting everything that the Father gives to the Son you are identical in status with the Son. Whatever Jesus gets, you get too. However Jesus is loved, you're loved too. And how is Jesus loved? Eternally, unendingly, in perfect delight and satisfaction. Remember we said last week, the Father never gets bored of his Son. 
Father never gets tired of Jesus. Now I figured Jesus out. Father never gets tired of you. Paul wants us to know this. The Father doesn't just give us some generic children of status, uh, children of God's status. That's why he says in verse 15, you've not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This entire letter is written in Greek. And then he just throws in this one Aramaic word, Abba. Why? Why not translate that into Greek? Why change the language? Why throw in Abba? I think he's wanting us to recall the last time that we would have read that word in our Bibles. When Jesus, in Mark chapter 14, and in the Gospel of Luke as well, and in the Gospel of John, he's in that garden and he's crying out, Abba, Father. If there's any other way for salvation to come to sinful humanity, if there's any other way, please let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. Jesus was able to just go before the Father and cry out on his knees, Abba, Father. And you and I have the exact same status. So we have the exact same status as the Son. Turn to Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says it in a different way, but a similar point. Galatians chapter 4, verse 3. We also, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. So we were children. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. We were children of this world. God sends the son to redeem us and adopt us as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, if you, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this verse, the apostle Paul's greatest concern is that we should know and realize that we are sons of God that we should be rejoicing and praising God and crying, Abba, Father, that we should be delivered from the spirit of bondage. And Paul's desire is for us to be so sure of this that no matter what may come to us from the outside, we may fully remain confident that we are as of God and joint heirs with Christ. You only get this through a triune God. You cannot get this as a solitary God. He doesn't have a son that you can share the status of sonship and adoption as sons with. Brothers and sisters, if you are saved, if you have been adopted as a son, as a daughter into the family of God, you are not tolerated by God. You're not put up with by God. You're not even accepted by God. You are loved and cherished by God. He loves you. Jesus shares his relationship with the Father, and he gives us the Spirit to comfort us so that we can understand the love of the triune God and share that with one another as well. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I want you to see an amazing section in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. This is a quotation from Psalm 22, but notice how the author of Hebrews applies this to our situation, to what we're talking about here. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. 
For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren. So Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. He's not ashamed to say, yeah, you're a part of my family. I don't know if you have anybody in your family that you feel ashamed that they're a part of your family. If there's anybody who has the right to feel ashamed about any family members, it's Jesus looking at us. And Jesus says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. He's clean, perfectly clean. And he comes and he condescends to unclean individuals. And he doesn't become unclean. He gives us his cleanliness. He's not ashamed to be in our mess. He's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, and this is a quotation from Psalm 22, verse 12, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. So this first line, I will proclaim, this is Jesus saying, I will proclaim your name. Father, I will proclaim your name to my brother. So he's not ashamed to call us brother. But then he says this, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Not only am I not ashamed to call them brother, but Again, in my mind, I just see Jesus standing far off. Yes, this is my family, and I don't want to be near them, and I don't want to be with them. This is my family, right? We're like that crazy uncle, and, you know, he just has to put up with us at Thanksgiving dinners. This is my crazy uncle family. He says, not only am I not ashamed to be called their, their brother, their family, but more than that, in the midst of the congregation, I sing their praise. I will sing your praise. I'm with them singing to you in their midst. Not only is he not ashamed to be called our family, but he loves to be with us. He wants to be with us. Sonship means being given the very relationship that the son has with the father. John Calvin said it this way. Christ's aim in all that he did was to restore us, to so restore us to God's grace as to make the children of men children of God. To make children of Gehenna heirs of the heavenly kingdom. That was Christ's ultimate aim, to share his life, to share his glory with us so that we might share in his inheritance, his standing before the Father and his life with us. This is only possible through a triune God adopting us and the Father justifying us through the work of the Son. John Calvin writes in his Institutes, of the work of justification. He defines it using the, the story of Jacob and Esau. You remember Jacob and Esau? Uh, one's very hairy. The other one's trying to steal the birthright. Uh, kills a, an animal, puts on the animal skin. Apparently, uh, that now makes him feel like uh, his brother. This is a crazy story. You guys remember the story. Listen to what Calvin says about this story and uses this story to illustrate justification. As Jacob did not of himself deserve the right of the firstborn. So he concealed himself in his brother's clothing and wearing his brother's coat, which gave out an agreeable odor. You remember he put the coat on that smelled like the smell of the cooking of those animals? So Jacob ingratiated himself with his father so that to his benefit he received the blessings while impersonating another. We, in like manner, hide under the precious purity of our firstborn brother, Jesus, so that we may be attested, clothed in his righteousness in God's sight, in order that we may appear before God's face unto salvation. We must smell sweetly with his odor. Our vices must be covered and buried by his perfection. 
this is, this is justification. We clothe ourselves with the work of Jesus. Again, you do not get this if you hold to some trinity light formula. And again, I think in justification, we share that term a lot in our church and in our fellowship. We share the beauty of justification. That's what sets us apart as Protestants. We love the doctrine of justification. But sometimes, again, because of trite definitions and a, uh, I'm trying to understand a, a mystery uh, that's just far beyond our full comprehension. We say things like justification equals just as if I've never sinned, right? God treats me just as if I'd never sinned, which is true. It's not untrue. But again, if you're like me, you will, you will hear that and you will say, so what God did through his son at justification is he wipes the slate clean, right? Wipes the slate clean, hands us a clean slate and says, try your best. I take that slate and the moment that I walk one step, I just muddy it up again, right? I make a mess out of that slate. And so we, we start to begin to feel like we have this yo-yo relationship with God where he justifies us, but we fall back out of grace. He justifies us, but we mess up again. He gives us a clean slate, but we mess up. But justification is not just a slate being wiped clean. It's an entire identity transformation. You go from being a, a child of wrath to a child of God. You go from being a sinful human being under the wrath of God, the wrath of God abiding over you, John 3 says, John 3.36, you go from being that to being an adopted son and daughter of God. We're united to Jesus. Therefore, it's not just a, a slate being wiped clean. It's a completely different identity. Martin Luther uses the illustration of marriage to describe this uh, aspect of justification. He told the story of a king, and the king represents Jesus, and he told a story of a poor girl who the king marries, and the girl is actually a, a prostitute filled with shame, debt, filth. She turns to the king one day, and she says, all that I am, I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you. So what does she have to give? What does she have to share? She has nothing. There's just debt, shame, filth. She's got nothing. But the king turns around and the king says, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I give to you. That's what your Savior has done for you. Everything that he has, he says it's yours. It's not just a clean slate. Luther goes on to say, the sinner therefore can take their sins in the face of death and hell, and say, though I have sinned, yet Christ, who is mine, has not sinned. And all my sin is his, and all his righteousness is mine, because I have been unified with Christ. If God was not Father and Jesus was not Son, then the Father could never treat us like this. If salvation comes from a single person, God, then it's just, again, it's not salvation, it's successful living. Just do whatever that God tells you to do. But if salvation is being adopted, then our performance, our successful living, doesn't matter. Because you can't buy your way into a family, right? If salvation is adopting us to be in the family of God, then our performance doesn't matter because you can't buy your way into a family. You don't choose your way into a family. I remember my son asked me one time, we were talking about all of our families, talking about uncles and aunts, and it's so funny seeing uh, our kids 
they can't quite figure out what makes an uncle an uncle and their relationship with us. Wait, who's their uncle? Is that your dad? Who's, who's your aunt? Is that your mother? What's going on? Who's, they're trying to figure those things out. And finally, my, my son, Ethan, said, Dad, when did you choose for Courtney to be your sister? When did you choose for Aunt Courtney to be your sister? I said, I, I, didn't, I didn't really make that choice, right? We were born in the same family. I, I didn't really have any say. I mean, I'm glad that the Lord gave me my sister, and she's older than me. She didn't have any say in me showing up in the family either, right? You don't pick the family you're going to show up into. Your efforts before the Lord can only make you a slave. No effort before the Lord can turn you into a son. You don't choose to be a part of God's family. You don't say, I'm going to buy my way into God's family. We often say that the problem with God is that he has really high moral standards. We can't attain to them. So we just try harder. But salvation is not just racking up brownie points, right? It's not just getting more brownie points. Salvation is God blessing us with sonship. And therefore, if we're sons, then our effort has nothing to do with it. Our effort has nothing to do with it. So if God were not father, maybe, just maybe, he would allow us to live under his rule, but he'd always keep his distance from us since we just keep messing up. Maybe, just maybe, he could offer forgiveness. But he would never offer closeness or intimacy. And he would never give us these things for free through grace. As Mike Reeves says, distant hirelings, we would remain. We'd just remain slaves, distant from him. But that's not the way our God works. Turn to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. Verse 1. Isaiah writes, Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, because I've redeemed you. I've called you by my name. I've called you by name. You're mine. You're my people. So when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flames burn you. You say, okay, why? How do I have this promise? How do I have this assurance? Is it because I'm amazing? Is it because I've done things that are awesome? Number one, because I'm the Lord your God. So it's not about us, it's about the Lord. I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I've given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Number two, not only am I your God, I'm going to do it, but verse four, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Don't be afraid. I'll take care of you. Why? Is it because of our performance? No, it's because I'm God and I love you. I love you. This is a father's affection for his children. He takes us, people who don't deserve anything, and he gives us everything. J.I. Packer says, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, just find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. This is the heart of Christianity. 
Let's go to one last passage, Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. One last verse. You guys remember Caleb, right? Caleb is described. Remember Caleb and Joshua, the only two of that generation that enter into the promised land. Everybody else dies. Caleb is described as following the Lord fully or with his whole heart. He wholly follows the Lord. Just listen to who Caleb is. Caleb is described in Numbers chapter 13, verses 4 through 6. This is the beautiful section of genealogies, and I'm going to hopefully show you why genealogies matter. Verse 4. These then were their names from the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, who's apparently related to Shamu, the whale, uh, the son of Zakur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, and the son of Hori, and from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. So Caleb is from what tribe? Judah. And he is the son of Jephunneh. So who is Jephunneh, right? We've got to figure out who Jephunneh is. Caleb is from the tribe of Judah. Judah. Who is Jephunneh? Turn to Numbers chapter 32, and we'll find out who his dad is. Where does his dad come from? Numbers chapter 32, verse 11. None of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. They didn't follow me fully, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. The Kenizzite. So Caleb is from the tribe of Judah, but he's the son of Jephunneh, who is a Kenizzite. Who's a Kenizzite? What's a Kenizzite? You remember back in Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham, all of those ites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Kenizzites, all of those ites in Cana are going to be taken away. All of the, the ites in the land of Cana are going to be removed so that you inherit the land. These are all pagan worshiping ites. Caleb is a Gentile from a pagan family. He's not an ethnic Jew. He's an ethnic Gentile. By the way, that explains his name. Caleb uh, is a Hebrew word. It's just Kelev. And Kelev means dog. His name is dog. Uh, Not looked upon favorably, right? Hebrews did not look upon um, dogs as like little pets. You know, they were considered outcasts. But maybe he kept that name as a badge of honor. I'm an outsider. I'm an outsider to Israel. I'm not one of you ethnically, but I've been adopted into the tribe of Judah. I've been welcomed and embraced by Yahweh. An ethnic Gentile, Caleb, an ethnic Jew, Joshua, would be the only two that would walk into the promised land. By the way, we know that Caleb uh, followed and served Yahweh into his 80s. Never turned his back on God. And I wonder if it's because he knew what his life used to be like, where his path was going if he stayed as a pagan idolater and how God had mercy on him to graft him in as an adopted son into his people. How much more so with us? We are vicious rebels. We are spiritual dogs. We are cold to God's love, but now we've been adopted not into the tribe of Judah, but into the family of God. That's what salvation is. And it's only possible through a beautifully triune God. Without God being triune, salvation is impossible and adoption is impossible. So how does the Trinity shape the gospel? Oh, brothers and sisters, the Trinity makes the gospel. 
Father, we thank you so much for your word that teaches us, that encourages us, that challenges us with the reality of what salvation really is. We have been adopted into your family. We've been adopted as sons and as daughters. We can cry out, Abba, Father. And because of that, we want to do just that. We want to sing, and we just want to say, thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son. And through your Son, adopting us so that we can have the exact same shared status as Jesus Christ. Father, help us to to know, to feel, to love, to cherish these realities, even as we sing. Teach us now, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing, There is a Redeemer. There is a Redeemer, Jesus Christ.